the optimal life. Wiley, whenever somebody comes on my show with a beard as full as yours, I always have to start. I always have to ask, man, how did you, how long does it take to get something like that? You know, it's, uh, I don't even know how long it takes. I think it's interesting is I've shaved it off and I've timed, I would say loosely on a regrow eight years ago. And I think it took me about two months to get back to this, this place that you see it at right now. But that's funny because I can't, I have guys in the, you know, the grocery store will say the same thing, trying to grow facial hair. And I'm like, look, I just eat a lot of healthy food and minerals and drink plenty of water. And I think that uh, supports also, of course, the genetics play a part in that as well. But yeah, I don't know, maybe about two months from uh, shaved to this uh, length. That's, right uh, that's impressive. Right. Yeah, because most guys can't yeah. pull that off. You know, it gets scraggly. <laughs> it gets a little all over the place. Yeah. They're going in different yeah. directions. What do you use? You use some kind of balm or, or beard butter? What do you have? Nothing. I'm I'm really? very uh, natural with it. It's I uh, keep it trimmed as much as I can. Sometimes I do a little bit of a, a trim down just to kind of stimulate more growth. But really, at the end of the day, it's just uh, I brush it out. I um, I wash it every other day. You know, these things collect everything out in the environment from dirt to food, et cetera. You know, my wife talks about sometimes catching me with little things in it. So I make sure I just take care of it properly, but I don't really put anything other than maybe some uh, coconut oil based lotion. If I'm, I'm putting that on my face. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it looks, it looks good on you, man. It looks good. I appreciate that. brother. You look Thanks. like that. <laughs> you look like that powerful guru that people are seeking assistance from it fits it fits the yeah, brand well. it fits the brand okay okay all right <laughs> <laughs> um you a fan of yellowstone the show i have you know i've never watched that oh that's okay. somebody asked me that question last week and I, I i have no context to it so well when i saw that you were a competitive bull rider i was like oh he must be yeah. a, a huge yellowstone fan because they do they yeah, do that I almost every episode Oh, is that right? No, I have not uh, had the time to actually sit down and, and, and invest in watching it. But yeah, uh, okay. yeah I'll have to take a gander. Yeah, definitely. You'll, you'd enjoy it. If, if, you like, if you like the, the mountains of, where are they, in Montana and the ranches? It's interesting. Yeah. yeah Monta it's, interestingly it's, enough, Nick, it's, uh, what I found out too is part of that show was actually shot in Utah. So there's a, uh, it's a, not necessarily all, all shot in Montana as well, which I found gotcha. was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. What's yeah. the uh, uh, most important skill set when you're a competitive bull rider? Obviously, the mental game. It, it, with every, when you're at an elite level, it's always mental. But what are, what are some of the more important skills? Fine motor, strength. What's important when you want to be successful in that field? Uh, you know, it go, I think life in general is all about optimizing holistically, uh, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And I, and I think most people end up focusing on one facet of being human, which is the mindset. We hear that constantly everywhere we go now nowadays it's such an overworked attribute mindset 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 but people are forgetting that like the, going to the gym you can't just build the bicep muscle and not work the rest of the body so for me being i was young before i joined the military i was young doing bull riding so um i learned quickly what it meant to be present and i think learning to slow down your thought processes learning to slow down your, and connect to your breath being very present really helped uh, the focus muscle build alongside obviously the mind and now the mindset is there it's like yeah i wanted to do this i'm a gritty young kid i was an athlete I, I have absolutely no problem getting on the back of this wild animal i don't care what happens to me i'm happy to take the the, the beatings and the bruises because we recover pretty quickly so it wasn't fear and the mind wasn't telling me don't do this i was excited to do that type of stuff but what i found that i learned more about it uh, that I apply it to everything that I've ever done in my entire life is 
um, presence of mind, not just mindset, but presence of mind, presence of my emotions, learning how to connect myself in the, in the chaos and bringing myself to a space where uh, decisiveness, it becomes an attribute. And it, it's actually something that I, I developed and learned myself is like, hey, how do I connect to this animal, to this moment and get the most out of this moment rather than worried about the technical skills that I need to apply to this animal while I'm riding it. So that's the biggest thing for me is presence of mind and presence of moment. Well, they do say anticipation is always worse than the act itself. You hear that Absolutely. so often with so many things in life. And right. I would imagine that that translates perfectly into exactly what you just talked about, getting the mind quiet in those moments of chaos and building up the anticipation, the anxiety. So when you are building up, when you're walking around and you're getting ready to get on that bull in the, what do they call it? The pen? Yeah. The shoots, uh, you know, in the cage, whatever we want to like throw the at cage. it. Sometimes we'll just whatever. <laughs> get. <laughs> yeah. And you're, and you're about to go sit on top of this monster that you know has one goal and that goal is to buck you as high into the air as possible. Um, yeah. What was some of the, the how, how do you quiet the mind? What were you doing? Uh, it's an active, I would say it's an active, decision to slow down the mind so it doesn't just happen because you're hey i'm about to get get on the back of the animal that i drew for whatever jackpot i might be in right now uh whatever show that i'm participating in or even if it's just a fun ride for the weekend you always take the time to actively sit down breathe focus on just being in the moment present in the moment allowing everything around me the smells of the livestock you know the 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 chatter going on with the other cowboys and cowgirls things going on around the arena uh, become kind of like an asset to that meditative state where you just you get into the, the, the zone and you really focus on your being present with yourself, not on, hey, what is that animal going to possibly do to me? Or could I get hurt? Or how am I going to ride? How, how good am I going to look to the audience? So you don't care about any of those things if you're really serious about the aspect of being uh, very present with the, the fact that you're about to do something pretty dangerous anyway. So I found that when I got on the back of the an each animal that I rode, uh, you know, different types of bulls, different ranks, different, uh, you know, uh, attitudes and personalities, if I wasn't taking the time to do that prior to the ride, or even when I was even getting on the back of the bull, um, I got thrown off pretty quickly or I, and or got slammed pretty hard. And I found that the more I allowed myself, even when I didn't make a ride, full eight second ride, the ride that I did get was still fluid. It was still much more elegant because of that time that I spent uh, preparing myself mentally, emotionally, getting my emotions in check, allowing myself to let the nerves be just an asset to my power rather than it being a detriment to my ability to stay focused on what I'm about to do. Because you, you spend all that time preparing. It's like skydiving. We spend all this time packing our parachute, preparing for the next load to go up on a 25 minute ride to altitude. And then we get a 45 second skydive. And it's like, so you, you realize that a lot of the times it is mindset work. It is presence. It is all about breath. It's all about staying focused and being very commi committed to, to that first. The act of riding just becomes like the byproduct of that preparation. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. I would imagine too then that you probably, after doing it so many times, you knew, hey, this is going to at least be a, a pretty positive ride. I'm in a flow. I'm in a good headspace. You know when it's going to feel, even if it's not perfect. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, when you're like going into muscle. it, the work's yeah. been the work's been done. You're in you're in that flow state. Right. It took me. I would say even as a young guy, I started at 16 years old. I think it took me. 
I want to say a year, at least a year, I was riding consistently every weekend if I wasn't doing something else, uh, playing sports. But um, majority of the part I rode mo every weekend as, as much as I could. I trained when I had the downtime and I found it took me about a year to really start getting into that flow where I felt good when I go to wherever, wherever I was going to ride and I, I paid my money to get into it, get my gear ready. And I just enjoyed the process. And it started to become like a, you go to the gym, you really get turned on by the burn rather than being kind of like, oh man, I'm going to be sore after this exercise. Um, you start to get really excited about the process. And even when you mess up, you're like, okay, I, now I know where I need to improve. Okay. I expected him to turn this way. I overemphasized my lean into that. I let my leg and my spur go here, or maybe my hand wasn't gripped as tight as I could have had there, or I didn't keep my eyes focused down on the on his back where his his body was turning. Those little elements start to play a factor quickly in your mind. So you start to expand mental capacity on how to be decisive in those quick moments. And I think that applied to, you know, that, that does apply to everything else you do in life, especially when you're in moments of stress is like, how do I stretch my capacity so I can make decisions in these chaotic moments that might be the best decision possible for the outcome that I'm looking for, or at least mm. get us on that direction. Yeah. Was there, was there one ride? How many times did you think you rode in, in your competitive years? Five years I rode, um, man, I can't even hundreds. I mean, hundreds. It's, hundreds. it's hundreds of times. Yeah. Was there hundreds. one, was there one ride that stuck out above all the rest where you uh -huh. said that was my, optimal ride of all like what was there something and what do you think it was that allowed you to 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 achieve that that high yeah the, there was one that popped into my mind as you you said that and the, the bull's name was uh white widow that 1800 pound uh male and he he had a reputation a white widow clearly the name uh as being a very aggressive spinner but when he spins he likes to whip his legs up in the air and kind of throw you around and try to throw obviously that's their job they're bred to buck um but i remember sitting down enjoying the day it was a saturday and um it was like a small jackpot it was like a 1500 prize and uh i don't know i, I got in the back of him i was sitting there with my, we were preparing my rope i just felt connected to him and i he looked back at me he kind of rocked in the shoot a little bit and i just kind of connected to him i spoke to him let him take it easy I was focused on my breath and I remember sliding up my rope when we got my rope ready and tightened it down as tight as possible. Everything just felt good in that moment. I know, you know, uh, people are listening probably. I know that moment when that everything just feels in place. And I took the opportunity to really appreciate in that very split second how good it felt. And when I slid up on my rope and I called my gate and he blew out of there, it's like the world stopped and everything got extremely quiet and it, it typically does get quiet but for some reason it was eerily just calm and quiet and i remember just feel, feeling like i was part of him everywhere he went he couldn't get rid of me and it was like i kept hooking into him right i kept leaning into the turn i kept dealing with the the you know the ability to sit down properly and, and the next thing i know they're the cow the, the clowns are waving at me i couldn't even hear the bell clowns are waving at me get off and i realized i had to pop my rope and of course he flipped me in the air and i landed on my back got up and crawled out of the gate and i felt excited and i thought did i actually cover that bull and they're like yeah you covered that bull and i thought wow that it didn't even matter nothing mattered that moment was the most exhilarating experience in my time riding um the bulls that way so wow. I, I that one will always stay with me forever I, I still i get a little chills when i think about it because it was such a an intuitive ride it was such right because that's that's what we're all trying to achieve like that that exact yeah. uh experience regardless of its bull riding or right. practicing uh, uh medicine we're all trying to right. achieve that we're trying to achieve what you experienced in that eight second 
run uh, with everything we do in life. And, and it's like, how do we get to that? How do we get there? Because it doesn't happen often, but when it happens, it shows that the potential is there. It's there. I, human capacity is amazing. And I think there's so much more that we could give uh, credit to when it comes to our abilities. Uh, I think we get too caught up in the idea that we can do it all ourselves. We get into this state of like um, self only, self God, self, you know, actualization, self manifestation. Where if you think about it, that limits yourself. You get caught up in thinking you're the only thing that's responsible 100% for everything you do or don't do you start to compartmentalize yourself. And I think I opened myself up to, you know, the, the pro cowboys over my mentors, uh, being a man of faith, you know, trusting in the process, being present in the moment, understanding what my skill set capacities were in that moment, rather than trying to be, go beyond it. I think people oversell themselves mentally that they can do something that seems cool or seems crazy, but they may not have the capacity in that moment yet to achieve that. So if you tell people, hey, slow down, enjoy the moment rather than worrying about the future of that process. I think we become a little bit more proficient in our ability to expand our personal capacity where we can then get to that state because it's not a state that you can sustain 24 seven, but there are opportunities for you to utilize that as fuel for your further progress in your, and whatever it is you look to do in life. Well, these experiences in the competitive bull riding, <clears throat> no doubt had a, a profound impact on you and the work that you're doing in your in your life at this stage. Uh, not only that, but the experiences combined with the three tour, uh, three tours. What what branch yeah. of the military were you in? I was in the U.S. Army with the 101st Airborne Division. I served as a light infantryman with the uh, 187 Infantry Regiment. So, uh, pretty historic uh, airborne regiment. Were you in, uh, were you in I Kentucky? Was a, uh, were you I was in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Fort Campbell? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So I did so, uh, my tours in Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Um, unbelievable. What was the least enjoyable of those three? <laughs> Iraq. <laughs> were you there? Uh, were was, you there for Desert Storm? No, no, no. I was there. Uh, I, I served uh, during the push in 03. So it, uh, February to the, you know, 2003 was when I served in Iraq before I got out. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I did Kosovo in 2000. I did Afghanistan in 0102. And then uh, Iraq was 03. They had a name for that, though, I think, too, even in the early. Was that Desert Strike or am I making stuff up now? I don't even honestly. It's been 20 years since I've been out of the military. I'm trying to remember yeah. what the name. I don't even. Oh, it's Operation Iraqi Freedom. That's that's the one. I mean, essentially. That, one's, what that one, obviously, yeah. that one's uh, everyone knows. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. Well, regardless of what name or, or fancy title or slogan you want to call it, uh, those experiences oh, yeah. had to be incredibly intense incredibly stress induced um i would imagine that that again fine tuning the the brain and the uh the mind and the emotional state that's a lot of things that you probably learn out there without even knowing that it's happening is that correct i mean they relentlessly train you for a reason i think people see they see on instagram and all that now we have all this technology you can see all the glory of the uniforms and the medals and the, the cool high speed things that people are doing in those those fun moments but that's that's like 10 percent of what's really going on at the end of the day i mean it, there's a lot of politics in the military there's a lot of hurry up and wait in the military but there is relentless training that especially in the combat arms, when you get into the infantry, which is the starting point to get into other things like special operations from Rangers to special forces, et cetera. It's like the training is relentlessly beat into you because you are the, the premier ground combat force for the United States Army. So, uh, or in the military in general, if you're in the Marine Corps, et cetera, you, you become 
more proficient because you go and endure through those rigorous mental, emotional train uh, or physical training uh, protocols where they physically beat you to see if you can hack it. They break you down to see if you're capable of pushing through. They, they train you in proficient tactical skill sets while you're tired, hungry, and miserable. So you start to become more in tune with that muscle memory and that intuitive nature of being a soldier. So that when you are in these situations where we went to Kosovo, of course, it was a peacekeeping operation, humanitarian aid, the NATO Joint Task Force, Falcon, et cetera, all after the whole 1999 war. Uh, we did a lot more over there than that. You know, there were things we did covert reconnaissance operations and stuff and capturing targets, et cetera. But it was like at 20 years old, I'm on a, a covert reconnaissance operation catching bad guys. And I remember for the first time being shot at, and I thought, and they didn't even know what they were shooting at. And I thought, why is it that I'm able to be so calm in this moment? Spent 11 hours on the side of this hill, not being seen, but just keeping this target in check. Um, how was I able to function? Well, it's because of that training. And you get into that state where now you have the real world experience. Now you know how to apply that training into these moments of chaos, where you then become even more fine tuned. So that the next time we went somewhere, which was Afghanistan, and we got into our first combat operation in the mountains of Afghanistan, and we had a little skirmishes, if you will, with the Taliban and whatnot. Um, you just know how to function. You you get air assaulted into a hot LZ. You know why their bullet is pinging off your aircraft. You know where to go. You know where to think. You know how to slow down your thought process and your emotions. You don't let them get in the way, and you know it's time to do my job. I know where my guys are. I know where I'm focused on. I know where to, 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 to take myself when I get off this aircraft. And it just become even more of an experience it doesn't mean that it's fun. It doesn't mean that it's exciting. I don't want everybody to think war is, anybody that says war is great is psychopath. So at the end of the day, you just understand that why I put so much time, energy, and effort into the training process and to getting myself perfect in this environment that's controlled is because when it, when real life happens, you're able to react to that stimuli in a completely different way than the average person. Yeah. Anybody that says to you war is great, you should probably run from them as fast as you can. Yeah. I mean, now there are guys that serve in special operations community and say, hey, I joined to serve my country, to fight for my country. There's nothing wrong with that. But every guy that I've ever done any operations with, I've worked with Navy SEALs. I've worked with the Green Berets in my job overseas and doing different raids and operations. And they all will say, hey, man, I'm nervous. This stuff sucks. Nobody yeah. wants to be here doing this. But at the end of the day, when you are there doing it, guess what? You're doing it for a reason. So you click on, you're turned on, ready to focus. Yeah. Serving and, protect, serving and protecting a mission or a cause or the, the right. nation, of course, is is different than proactively just thinking that war, all war is good. Let's go to um, war. Yeah, that's not the attitude. <laughs> correct. Correct. Right. Um, but uh, but uh, this is interesting because you know you've been out for twenty years, as you said. So yeah. I would I yeah. wonder if you were, and, and you should never know from this experience. But what do you think, hypothetically speaking, if you were in a crowded area or a restaurant or a movie theater and, and there was an active shooter, an active gunman? How do you think you would respond today? I still run towards the fire uh, to be candid and to be honest. I think my wife even says that she knows is that when, you know, a car accident might happen out in front of our home, that's the first thing I do is call 911 and I run out towards it. I think it's, it also part of that is, is who you are too. I think there are people that are just bred that way when they're, you know, they're brought up by their families and it's an, there's an innate part of us. Some people won't do that. Some people just can't handle that pressure. And, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with you if you want to run away from a gun gunshot. Um, there are just some people that hear it and want to move towards it to assess the situation. Uh, it doesn't mean you're stupid about the assessment. It doesn't mean you run blindly into the fire. You, But I think naturally it just comes to me where 
I want to go see if I can help solve that problem or fix that issue or, you know, take care of whatever it might be. Because most people nowadays, especially unfortunately in our culture, uh, every, most people are pointers. Not a lot of people are action takers and there's not a lot of people that will run towards something. They'll pull out their phone first or they'll run away from it because it scares them. Um, and I don't want to fault them, but at the same time, I think that's where there's another part is somebody else will say, well, another person will call 911. Somebody else will go help them out. You know, I don't have to worry about it. And for me, it's just unacceptable. I think 20 years later, it's still ingrained where something happens. I think I just turn to see what it is first. I see where it's coming from. I assess the direction of, of the noise and I assess the environment I might, I might be in. I assess the type of people I'm around. Uh, you know, if it's happening in the mountains of, a, you know, Arizona, you know, where there's barely anybody, I'm not going to go running into the wood line to see where it's at. It's like, okay, maybe somebody's hunting out here. I'm in Arizona. But if I'm in a big city downtown somewhere, that might be a different reaction. Well, that's the perfect segue. That's beautiful stuff. I mean, and you are probably more of an outlier in that regard than than uh, uh, the, the norm. But uh, that's the perfect segue into, mm. again, the work that you're doing. The work that you're doing, mm. you're running into fires. You're you're not afraid of the challenge. You're not afraid no. of the chaos. You're helping these people, uh, high achievers, um, you know, find the peace, find the happiness, find the fulfillment, while continuing to optimize their businesses. Um, I think the the phrase I'm on your website, the phrase you use is unfucking the lives of powerful people. How in the world are you unfucking their lives? <laughs> You know, trying to explain, I'm glad you brought that up, trying to explain what it is that I specifically do and have done for the last 14 years is one of the biggest challenges I think I face. It's harder for me to describe it than it is to get into a gunfight. I mean, it's interesting that um, I'm not a coach. So everything that I do has nothing to do with your typical coaching protocols and the I would say systematized processes and step-by-step -step things that we have all become so conditioned to understand is in the personal development self-help field. Everybody hears it that way. Now, if you free downloads to books, when you go to websites, you know, download my five-step process to a better business and five axing this. And so when they hear me speak and all the hundreds of podcasts I've been on, some people are confused and it's because I don't, I'm just not built that way. I don't approach human performance from a, a, the standpoint of let's focus on making you more money and then we'll focus on your relationship with your wife and then we'll focus on your health over here and then we'll focus on the steps of that takes for your fitness. It's holistically encompassed. It is a business that I we built around a, a skill set and a gift that I actually already obtained at coming into this world that I have where I'm able to, in the moments of chaos, see where the real blind spots are, see where the real limitations are for these people, understand their language, what it is that's going on with them, feeling them. I just can't explain in logical terms what that means and looks like. The best way I can describe it in that answer for you for that question is I am basically their new best friend, battle buddy, confidant. I jump into the trenches of their life with them. I live with them. I travel with them. I'm by their side 24-7, if you will. There's a certain determined framework that we have, but it's not a cookie cutter process. We don't really know where we're going to go until we open the hood. It's the same thing when you go to the mechanic. Hey, you got a clinking in your engine. You're not going to go, okay, so I know I need to replace the piston. Well, how do you know there aren't other problems if you don't open the hood? Well, I just know. I just know because I've been doing this for 20 years. And I think that's where most coaches get lost is they get really hyper-focused and niched down into, I'm a business coach. I only focus on systems of business. And then they don't realize that 
that business might be failing because of that human, not because of the system that's in place. It might be a completely different piece of the puzzle that most people don't want to address. Most coaches and even therapists don't really have the capacity or ability to go into the trenches where the darkness really resides within that person who's achieved such high levels of success. So if you don't have someone who's in it with you by your side, looking at your life, no stone left unturned, how are you gonna truly understand where your limitations are or what blind spots still need to be resolved if you're just going and hiring a coach that you can somewhat control and just doing the things that gradually make you uncomfortable rather than just being pushed out over the edge to a place where you've never been so you can expose where the real limitations are, especially with those that have such power and potential and prominence, et cetera. So it really, at the end of the day is I'm battling their personal demons with them. I'm fighting things that they don't want to look at. Has nothing to do with making a billionaire more money. Has nothing to do with making a celebrity more successful or famous. Has everything to do with the entrepreneur, the person, the individual going to places they refuse to go, hearing things they don't want to hear, stripping them away from those creature comforts that everybody else says, you know what, when you're ready to, then we'll talk about it or do it. It's like, I, I, I don't care who someone is. I don't care what their status or the notoriety is, how much money they have. What matters to me is that human being is suffering. They are not at peace. They may have a nine figure, eight figure, seven figure bank account, but they're not living the life they say they want. Their relationships are struggling. Their health is deteriorating. They're not as optimal as they want to be, but they keep going down the same path of, well, I want to keep hiring a coach and another coach and another guru because Tony Robbins has a, you know, his name or this person over here has this rather than realizing, you know what, I need to literally get myself put into a fire so that I can understand what it means to erupt and eradicate stress and actually accelerate in who it is that I am because the byproducts of that are more opportunity, more money, more success, more peace, more freedom. That's beautifully stated. Let's go through, you you have a few of these uh, examples on your website without naming names, of course, but if you could just dig into this a little bit, I want to just go down a few of these bullet points. Because you kind of give a little insight into the type of people you're helping and some of the issues that they face. So let's go down it. Uh, You say when a CEO is fed up with spending millions on personal development gurus, quote unquote, that leaves Mm -hmm. him no better off than where he started. That's when I'm called to give him the total life overhaul he needs. What did you do? (laughs) Again, if I sit here and break down what it is I did, it would sound so okay cool you you made him do that you made him do this that's why it's an experience to do the work that i do with people um i can't you know, even describe how, what how it do you is give the, how do you give us the elevator speech on just where was he when you first started with him and then where was he at the end okay yeah he was fried he was burnt out he was at his wits end he was stuck in micromanaging the operations of his company where he shouldn't have been he's the visionary the figurehead he should have been he created what he created for 30 plus years so that he didn't have to be in that position his relationship with his wife was on the rocks his child was suffering and he wasn't respecting the way that he was hoping for um his friends noticed a dramatic shift in his health his attitude he was frazzled the point where he couldn't stay focused and it was causing a massive impact in his life and around in all of his relationships he was at a point where he was ready to basically call it quits uh and 
And I, I don't know what next. And I had a conversation with a joint, a mutual friend of ours who said, hey, look, would you be willing to sit down with my friend? Here's who he is. I knew his name. I was like, okay, got it. She said, he's, he's not in a good place, but I don't know what else to do for him because he's done all the work. He knows everybody. He's friends with all the big name people. They can't get him out of the hell he's in. I know what it is you do, but I, I don't know if it, this is something he'd be even willing to jump into. And that's why I was able to, we texted each other. We ended up meeting each other and spending five hours the first day together. And I spent the next eight months with this guy, calibrating him to understand that as I processed through what was going on in his life, seeing where his real problems were, which is the fact of old stuff from his childhood, all the way through the fact that people were taking money from him, even though he's a multimillionaire and created so much wealth and so much opportunity for people, people were always in the handout stage and taking advantage of him. He didn't understand why. So at the end of the day, all his coaches couldn't figure that out. Why here, just do this and just do this. Go swim in the ocean, go figure this out. Mindset work, mindset work, mindset work, meditate. And nothing was working for him. It's because nobody was willing to press the ugly truth about what was causing this malfunction in his life. And because nobody spent time to intimately get into that trench with him, they didn't want to see the ugliness of it. They couldn't handle the ugly. They were like, I don't want to deal with this stuff. So when I spent that time with him, he wasn't ready to do the work. And I eight months investing time, energy and money because I wanted to realize that, hey, I got brought into your life because your friend. I got brought into your life because I'm here to actually care about you, take care of you, change it, shift the perspective. He was so used to the other aspect of it that he couldn't believe that there was actually another person in this world that cared deeply enough to do something about it. And I wasn't just out to get it. I wasn't just out to get him. I wasn't just out to attack. So once we broke down through those barriers and we were in a good position, that's when I got a phone call and he was like, I'm ready. And I said, I understand. I feel it's time to jump or we're, we have to part ways. And we ended up spending the next year working together privately. So it, my, everything I did in him is not something I can share with people. It's not something that's, that's easily understandable by the mind. I get it. It sounds weird. I have people make random comments on other podcasts and how, what the heck is this guy talking about? It makes no sense. I totally understand. But the point is, I'm just built that way. I get into the trenches. I fight through the demons that they're dealing with. I go to places other people will not go. I say things that people will not like. I, I'm very un unconventional and unorthodox. Technically, by standards, if you heard what I say to some of these people, you'd be like, wow, I can't believe you're getting away with making them do that, say that, etc. And I don't care because I know if I say it a certain way, it's going to create a certain eruption. And we're going to be able to actually address and face it, battle it head on and move them through it because the other side of it is more acceleration in their potential, is more peace that they're longing for. But that's the thing is I'm willing to fight people. I, I'm not afraid to fight them. I'm not afraid to get into their face. I'm not afraid to get knocked down wherever we need to go to battle through what it is that might be holding them back. And that's the best way I can describe what actually happens with people. And that CEO, I mean, is I got a call from him. I had dinner with him four years after we stopped working together. I never see my clients again, but he said, I just have to take you to dinner. And I said, okay. And he said, here's where I'm at. This is what's going on. And he's in the best place he's ever been. His wife and him are as happy as they've ever been. His child got into Caltech and they're doing some really cool stuff. He's, he's all over the world right now. He's making great money and he's just fulfilled and he's at peace. And he's like, I never thought I'd get out of the hell that I was living in. Well, it sounds like most people they do, they just want to stay at the surface level. These quote unquote gurus or coaches go to the swim, go in the ocean, take a hike, you, you know, do yoga, any the stuff everyone can. <laughs> yeah. Nobody wants to dig. Nobody wants to go down into no. the layers, into the weeds, into where it all stems from. Well, no, everybody, you know, the like other what... thing too is 
Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but there are a lot of people out there that say that's what they do because again, they don't want to, they don't want to feel or believe that they're, they're that other person. But I've met so many people, I do that kind of work too. It's like, I'm sorry, you don't, and that's okay. You're, you know, we always try to compare ourselves to each other and it's like, it's okay. I'm not cut from the same cloth as you. And that's, that's fine. You've got your efficacy. You do your job. You maybe do create some results. I'm not saying the stuff that's out there doesn't give people results. I'm, just built to do what it is I do specifically. I can't explain why when I'm in people's space with them intimately, they start to erupt their deepest, darkest truths. Everywhere I go, the only way I've ever gotten clients was through third-party referral or because of someone's reaction to me at an event or a party or somewhere they just see me and they feel me and they go, I don't know what it is about you, but I just need, uh, and they dump and they share and they download and we talk and we get to know each other. I don't get work through a website or a strategy session with someone where we talk about their goals. I don't do it through, you know, um, sitting down and, and, and looking at where their business plan is. It's literally intimate experiences with people for 14 years. That's how I, I was for all intents and purposes, did not want to be out here doing this stuff in public 12 years before the pandemic. I was behind the scenes. I had no website, no business card. I, I was happy not having to explain what I did. I was just intimately passed around and people just got to meet me that way. But again, the pandemic started. So we're like, hey, how do we just keep doing the work we're meant to do? How do we keep sharing with people what it is? And that's why I'm sitting here with you today and doing this, having these conversations because there are leaders out there that are, their egos don't realize it, but they're, they're stuck, they're trapped. We're seeing it at the top of our government right now. These politicians and these CEOs and powerful people are suffering and they're spilling that suffering into the population. No doubt about it. I, yeah. I do want to hear a few more details. Um, not not necessarily the what exactly did you do, but let's just sure. touch a couple more of these. You you talk about the celebrity when the celebrity felt claustrophobic, <laughs> right? Yeah, and yeah. overwhelmed by public pressure. I assume that means this this woman. It says you uh, mm -hmm. you were the intervention that brought her back. She started to use psychedelics. You said so. I assume what you're saying that she just was feeling the anxieties of being in the public spotlight, all the attention, all the pressure, she turned to some stimulants and then you came in and kind of saved the day. So tell us a little bit more about that. Ooh, she was, uh, yeah, she was <laughs> not in a good place. So this is the other, I think the problem in society is we, as more now than ever, everyone is now talking about and over uh, Americans, especially are really bad at this. We hear, oh, psilocybin has positive effects for relieving stress, PTSD, and anxiety. And it's like, okay, well, now that gives me uh, latitude to abuse mushrooms uh, as a party favor. So it, well, it's enlightening. It's natural. Same thing with cannabis. Oh, it's a natural plant. Unfortunately, no, those things are not, not as good for you as they are being led to, for us to believe they are. In controlled environments, very, very specific purposes, et cetera. Yes, I can understand that because we're doing it in the VA for veterans of PTSD. But the problem is with her, right? When I was, I met her at, at a very private event that our mutual acquaintance introduced us to. She was overwhelmed by that anxiety and stress, not because that's what happens being a celebrity, but it's because of, again, it's unresolved stress that people carry throughout their life experiences from their traumas to their abuse, to their addictions, all the way from the, the lack of uh, proper dynamics in family it, there it sounds psychological but it's not it's holistic there's a whole aspect of being human where people don't know how to manage going back to the bull riding conversation they've never worked on their capacity to stretch and manage moments of chaos so they take on 
that stress, that energy. They, they, they basically hold on to it. They suppress it and sweep it under the rug and it will come out. It will eventually manifest, if you will, into a, a situation you don't want it to, especially when you're being stimulated. It's like going a soldier going to combat who isn't trained properly. What's going to happen when they hear that first bullet whiz past their head? They're going to freak out. They're going to lose it. They're going to freeze. People die. We have problems with that. So with her, she was so overwhelmed with her how fast she was growing in her career um, that she thought she needed to use psychedelics consistently to deal and manage with it. And we even had an argument at dinner one night and I, and I, before even officially kind of worked together, we were spending time and she, and she knew this is where I was going to go. No, you, you know, everybody's trying to control me and this is my career, you know, publicist. I said, that's, I get it. I understand how now I'm another threat because I'm in here trying to contain you, but you have to discern why I'm here. You have to discern why I'm containing you, why I'm in your life to begin with. I understand where you're at, but I, she goes, but I need this. I said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead, give it a go. And she basically abused psychedelics for like a month and came back to me and we had a dinner, another dinner. She was disheveled and very stressed out. And she goes, I don't know why none of this worked. I was told ayahuasca did this. I was told, you know, if I went over here and I did mushrooms, that would help me break through my fears or my worries. And, I, and I, she goes, I only got worse. I said, you were meeting parts of yourself you weren't ready to meet because you did not do the work yet to get through so that if you want to add in a psychedelic in the right timing to maybe push you past a certain threshold, mm. that's the difference. So when I was with her and spent all those months with her by her side, Again, we were going to the depths of the places even she said her therapist wouldn't even go. She wouldn't even ask her therapist, hey, what about X? Well, we'll get to that when the time comes. You need to just worry about this right now. It was always feeling like the therapist or coaches, et cetera, her advisors would always just kind of superficially keeping her in this like never ending long process of right. she was never able to see out. that light at she was i'm sorry she was never able to right. see that light yeah. at the end of the tunnel it was it was and nobody hard. just goes you know I, i'm gonna be a blunt force object and i'm gonna come right at you and i'm gonna show you what it is how do you know what that is is because how do i explain to you uh how the moon works i don't know i just know it's there so once you trust it because we're in this relationship together and then when you embrace that what do I, like how does how does the ranger going through rasp know that the, the rasp instructor what he's telling them to do is actually good for him, even though on the surface it looks scary and dangerous, or it might be, you know, seemingly impossible. It's because they go, you know what, that cadre knows what he's talking about. I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm going to listen to this guidance I have, this person who is clearly here because they give a shit about me. And then I'm going to engage in it. I'm going to embrace it. And I'm going to embrace the suck of the situation and watch what happens when I battle through that with that person by my side. And that's what she got. And to the point where she realized, wow, I was actually trying to escape my life, which is what never allowed me to experience the joy of what I worked so hard to achieve. And that brought her back to reality where we were able to face so many different variants of that she never looked at in her life, which allowed her to strip the anxiety, get rid of the fear, look at herself in a different light, be happy with what she's got. And then consequently as a byproduct, she was getting bigger paycheck opportunities, more sponsors, things like that. And she was feeling more at ease and at peace with what doesn't mean her stress being a celebrity went away. It just means she knows how to manage it much better than anybody who's ever tried to help her could possibly teach her to do. Fascinating. Let's finish yeah. it off with this last one. Um, Cause it stands out to me when a sex addicted wall street exec was tortured mm. by years of distorted rehab efforts. I was called in to expose the actual source of his dysfunction and revitalize his relationships. Wiley, what can you tell us about this? Mm. Remember that. 
Well, you know, what's interesting is he, he ended up using a little psychedelic um, protocol himself, which is, I found that quite interesting. I had a couple of people I work with that did that soar by it, but um, he wasn't, he wasn't, how do I say it? it wasn't a sex addiction. That was the problem. It was a lack of intimacy, a lack of understanding what intimacy meant in relationships in general, not sex. It was an, uh, a missing component mentally and emotionally that he was not, I would say, nurtured the right with growing up. Again, being in Wall Street, he was just a driven guy, 15, 16 years managing and working with billions of dollars, getting out and wanting to start his own thing. He thought, you know, this is my problem. And he spent so much time going down the wrong path, thinking this is how I do the deep inner work. Uh, but he always found himself struggling going, okay, what's next? Why do I not get the reprieve I'm looking for? Why is it temporary and not sustaining? So we ended up meeting uh, internationally at a, a conference and he walked up and said, hey, I've just been kind of checking you out for the last couple of days and what do you do? And then we just sat down, had dinner and we started talking. We stayed in touch for a few months after we got home to the States. And um, yeah, I don't know, it just naturally fell into place where he's like, look, I don't know what it is about you, but you, you seem like somebody who's, who, who won't hold back for me and I need somebody who's gonna kick me in the nuts. I need somebody who's gonna push me and really make me make me face things that that challenge me and he was just a, an achiever so he always wanted that really gritty kind of stuff so that's why we were able to doing the work and then it was instantly when i flew to new york to spend time with him and i thought dude why are you going to these things this has nothing to do with that we were able to actually get real intimate deep and, and quickly expose what was really going on with him and, and find out that man i have been lied to i've been lying to myself people have been lying to me my therapist has been lying to me i know we hear therapists with every conversation piece here but that's the problem people spend all, all these years with therapy and they don't really get anywhere what we discovered the fact is that nobody cared deeply enough to actually take his head and go no look this way this is what's really going on and then not only look point him in the right direction but walk it with him be in the pain, be in the stress, be in the turmoil, feel the discomfort that that individual's feeling alongside them and being in it with them as they're going through it all the way to the other side. And that's, I think, the difference in what, why we're able to, to do what we were doing so fast and accelerating to a place where, you know, he's doing his own thing now privately, making millions of dollars doing it. He's happy, he's fulfilled. And I think he's finally got a, an intimate relationship that matters to him. So, yeah, it sounds like so often what we do, sometimes we find these negative outlets to distract us from mm. the real causes of our, our discontent. Or well, the other thing too is he, human beings will, will replace one addiction with another, even if it seems healthy. I mean, there are, I know plenty of people that were uh, suffering with abusing alcohol. They went to AA, AA become their new drug. Uh, and now with the way they talk, they talk about AA as if they talked about when they were needed to drink that bottle of whiskey. The problem is there's no resolution in there. There's no peace. There's no God. There's nothing in there to, to fill that gap that they're looking for. So they just replace it. Now, is it better? Sure. They're not drinking the substance, but that still becomes a problem too, because you replace one addiction or one issue with another and you don't resolve the problem, get to the root cause of it. The demons that lurk within, people are afraid of that. Most human beings are afraid of themselves. That is the ultimate fear we have. We're afraid of the unknown, thereby which we are afraid of ourselves. Therefore, we actually avoid anything that sounds ugly, uncomfortable, just, you know, startles our senses and makes us run for the hills. That's why we find people go, I love going to these events. I love the seminars and the coaching programs. Anything that keeps you hooked to it like that is not transforming your life. I, and I don't care what anybody says. 
if you don't break away from your resources at some point and dislike them and break that dynamic, nothing's transforming. You need something that really makes you push away from it because the only way the permanent change lands is if you're no longer dependent on that very thing that you needed in the beginning to get you to where you want to go. Just, I just want to touch on this real quick. You, you mentioned the <clears throat> AA. So yeah. the alcoholic, do you believe that the alcoholic who replaces the alcohol with AA, um, if they don't, if they're not so obsessed with that as their new distraction and they have God, I think you mentioned, are they able yeah. to find a, a common middle ground where they can tr- do AA, but still have God and maybe some other things and, and still yes. be able to kick the addiction? Yes. They, they don't have to be obsessed with, with the complete no. opposite is what you're saying. No, because if, if a calling is to stay engaged with the AA, and I know a guy who does it right now. I also see you know, him and I talk, he's a successful businessman and I see him all the time. We jump out of planes together and he says it all the time. He goes, look, I know I'm still got that kind of erratic, you know, addictive energy, but I've noticed over the years how his AA isn't uh, a replacement. His AA is part of his holistic focus on being a better human being being more connected. He supports other people who are struggling that are at at their early stages. So he's learned to adapt. He's learned to understand it's a tool. It's not a replacement. It's something we, it's the same thing when people are like, I'm, I'm going to meditate every single day, 6am every day. It's like that, that that's still obsessive. You don't need to be doing that so much. It's, it's so overtaught in our culture Mm. that if you're not doing it, you're somehow failing in personal growth. Not necessarily true. What tools are you using in the timing that you're using them? And then how do you ap- apply that into your life so that you see the benefit rather than it just becoming this obsession that you're just basically, basically on a rat, uh, like a rat on a wheel spinning in circles. And I think there's a possibility for people to do that. Beautiful stuff. Very interesting and stimulating uh, uh, topics and, and the work that you're doing. WillieMcGraw.com. We've linked it in the show notes. I want to finish yep. with, yep, yep. Or Wiley. I want to finish with, with, uh, um, uh, one final question for you. Circling back, somewhat thought-provoking. Keep this if you can, because we can do a whole podcast probably on this question alone. But but let's see if you can do it in less than 60 seconds, the answer. <laughs> right. um, we talked about your bull riding. We've talked about the coaching. We've talked about your experiences in combat. And you seem to have returned from combat, as you said, very healthy. Healthy mind, healthy spirit, healthy body. Uh, a lot of others don't return from combat with those same levels of health, especially the mental health. So how sure. do you believe somebody um, like yourself comes back and, and seems to be better than ever and is and is is mentally and emotionally stronger than he has ever been? And there's others who come back with post-traumatic stress disorder and a shell of themselves. How do you explain that? I explain it from the same standpoint that I would explain anything else is that we're all at different capacities, different levels of life, period. Our experiences are going to be vastly different from the next guy. So uh, the buddies I have that suffer from severe PTSD came home, but they didn't get into a pipeline with the right resources to help them manage and understand their stress. That's the difference between what transpires from a veteran coming home. The, The transition that really stimulates more PTSD than anything is not from combat itself, but is the integration back into civilian life, getting to a place where 
the brotherhood, the connection, the focus on one one mission, everybody in it for a certain reason, coming into a selfish, very selfish population, really does cause a lot little more damage than the war itself. There are a lot of guys that thrive in combat. They enjoyed it. It's like you you realize, wow, it's the ultimate test of of manhood is being able to have that kind of competition with another human being. So I would say this: I got home, I dealt with stress. I got home and I focused on how do I face the stress. How do I find resources that challenge me? How do I get to a place where I can face my pain, my, my, my truth, and actually get rid of it so that I know what it is that I'm capable of doing without it being a hindrance in my life? I think a lot of guys don't have access to those resources or nobody cares deeply enough to get them access. Now, there are some guys and gals that are just unbelievably in a bad place because of what they've experienced, rightfully so, and they need a little bit longer of a process to really learn how to manage and deal with that stress. So I think there's just, it's, it's, don't place pressures on yourself that you have to be like that next guy or like this guy or like that guy. What is it that matters to you? Face your truth, battle through your own personal demons, find the right resources. And when you get to where you want to go, it'll be in the timing that's right for you. And I think the other piece, and I'm going to say this confidently out loud, is I think we live in too much of a secular world where people don't have enough faith. There's not enough um, prayer life. There's not enough giving it to something else outside of themselves. Everybody is just focused on, I can do it all on my own. And if I don't do it on my own, that breaks them mentally. Uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Wiley, yep. uh, really awesome connecting with you and continued success. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you having me.